You know what feels weirdest about all this right now is that I'm sitting on the left side of the couch. <laughs> you can <laughs> sit like, wherever you want. This, you know? this doesn't feel right. <laughs> I'm normally sitting on the right side. What the heck? <laughs> all right, we good to go? Yeah, as long as your spatial identity is okay. <laughs> Hello everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days, and not-so-good old days, of World Championship Wrestling Series by Series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and I'm joined via teleconference from Chicago, Texas, by Alec Pridgen. Yeah, I'm enjoying a nice rodeo in the snow. <laughs> snowdio, I believe they call snow- it. The snowdio, yeah, that would, that would sound right. Yeah. How's it, how's it going tonight, Al? Good, how are you doing? Doing all right, doing all right. Uh, taking it day by day here. Yeah, I mean, the biggest problem a lot of people have is they're living in isolation, and you definitely don't have that problem. Yeah, yeah, it's it's been active. <laughs> we'll put yes. it that way. <laughs> Makes time go by faster, hopefully. Yes, yes, it does. Whereas watching certain matches on the show, mostly one in particular, makes time seem much slower. Yeah, yeah, we definitely got some experiments in time dilation. Uh, what was the last time we referenced that? That was, uh... <laughs> oh, jeez, uh... The Freebirds match, right? Oh, yeah, They're, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that had, that had like a temporal dilation to it, but it had a bit of a reality dilation for John, for sure. Yes, yeah. It threw him completely off. It was hilarious. Well, we're going to be starting our new series, Wrestle War, next episode. But tonight, we wanted to take a look at one of Jim Crockett Promotions' one-off shows, featuring a match type we heard a lot about during our Starcade run, most infamously over the loudspeaker during poor Ric Flair's promo time. Tonight, it's Bunkhouse Stampede 88. The Bunkhouse Stampede concept was created in 1985 by Jim Crockett Promotions, and for the first few years was essentially a battle royale match where you had to throw your opponents out over the top rope, and the last man in the ring was the winner, except that the wrestlers wore street clothes and could bring weapons. Honestly, that does sound pretty fun to watch. Each year, there'd be a kind of tournament, since Jim Crockett Promotions and WCW both love their tournaments. Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) In which wrestlers would compete in bunkhouse stampede matches to earn the right to compete in a final bunkhouse stampede match for the trophy. I won't spoil what the trophy was quite yet. Things changed a bit in 1987, with the finale being a singles bunkhouse match in a steel cage, where the objective was to throw your opponent out of the cage rather than just out of the ring. But one thing didn't change. The winner. In 1985, 1986, and 1987, the winner was... Dusty Rhodes. Now in 1985, 86, and 87, the bunkhouse stampedes weren't even televised, save for a scant few minutes of one on free TV in 1985, But now, in early 1988, Jim Crockett Promotions has finally decided to put one of these matches on the air, and give it its own pay-per-view to boot. The Bunkhouse Stampede Finals were held on January 24, 1988, at the Nassau Coliseum in Uniondale, New York, in front of 6,000 fans. We do not, unfortunately, have the pay-per-view buys. 
This was one of the early Jim Crockett Promotions attempts at pay-per-view, much like Starcade 87. But don't worry, Vince McMahon of the WWF didn't try to sabotage this show by scheduling a WWF pay-per-view at the same time and trying to strong-arm pay-per-view providers like he did with Starcade 87. <laughs> no, this time he sabotaged it by scheduling a cable TV special to air at the same time. <laughs> It was based around the WWF's own unusual variant on the Battle Royale, the Royal Rumble. That'll never last. A stupid idea. No one did that. (laughs) No, it would go on to become one of the WWF's most famous, enduring, and beloved matches, which had its start as a petty way to screw over Jim Crockett promotions. (laughs) I trust him for you. That's a bit of history I'm sure they smooth over on the official releases. Oh, yeah. Not that Jim Crockett promotions couldn't sabotage themselves since they also apparently managed to print tickets with the wrong start time on them. Mm. 7.30 p.m. when the show actually started at 6.30 p.m. But, did Vince have reason to worry? If he'd let all eyes be on Jim Crockett promotions tonight, would it have hooked new viewers with a great pay-per-view? To find out, let's go to the ring. One dark match was held before the show went on air. Sadly... That was a match featuring the Sheep Herders versus Jimmy Garvin and Sting. So yeah, we missed a Sting match. Yeah, but you also missed a Sheep Herders match, so I don't know how how upset you're going to be. Yeah, I don't know. You were kind of excited when we talked about the show, because this was pre-Bushwhackers days. Yes, that's the, that's the thing to understand is that, yeah, they were a serious tag team with a serious manager and a gimmick. Then Vince bought them and said, yeah, you, you'd be silly, you know, wave your arms and lick people's faces. <laughs> There's a bit of a story to this one. Apparently, this was supposed to be the Rock and Roll Express versus the Sheep Herders. Yes. Except that the Rock and Roll Express left the promotion one day before the show. I'm pretty sure you mentioned that when we were doing Starcade 87, if I recall correctly. I believe correctly. I did, yeah. So I'd imagine that's why it became a dark match, but come on, it's Sting. It's just funny to me that two months before his big opportunity at Clash of the Champions 1, Sting was performing off the air. There actually is a Sting appearance on the show. I think you missed. And actually, I oh, missed really? the first time. I'll, I'll explain it when the proper time comes up. Okay. I'll leave the teaser in there for uh, people to keep listening. Sounds, sounds fun. Okay. The show proper opens with some excellent generic 80s rock. Oh, yeah. That sounds like it belongs in a side-scrolling beat-em-up game. <laughs> and we get a brief title screen before we see Nikita Koloff coming to the ring for our first match. But hold on. After a shot of Tony Schiavone with wonderful mustache and mullet, mm-hmm. he'll be serving as ring announcer tonight, we jarringly cut to our commentators for the evening, Jim Ross and Bob Cottle. It's been a long time since we've seen them, especially Cottle. Oh, yeah. Ross would have been, was it 90 was his last show? I feel like he was on 91 still. I think you're right, because his, his, his first WF show is WrestleMania 9. So that tells you a little bit of the timeline of that, if you know what year that is. Yeah, I can't remember exactly when his last one was. And then Caudill, I don't think we saw since the end of the 80s. No, that's for sure. Caudill welcomes us to the show and says, It's going to be a great night. And JR runs down the card. We've got three championship matches and the Bunkhouse Stampede finals. So, <laughs> four matches total. Wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm not sure we can handle that. That would be too much for us. <laughs> Honestly, after some of the insane numbers of matches we've seen on the Starcades, yeah, that kind of felt really good to me to hear. One of the matches, also, is for everyone's favorite title, the Western States Heritage Championship. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> Whoever came up with that name, bless you. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but it's time for our first match. The Cookie Monster, sorry, the Russian Nightmare, Nikita Koloff, <laughs> versus beautiful Bobby Eaton with his incredible mullet. Yes. Oh, and Jim Cornette. <laughs> for Koloff's NWA World Television Championship. The referee for this match is Ismail Garetta. In promos following Starcade, Cornette bragged about how strong his two men were, the Men Express were. At this point, they're the NWA US Tag Team Champions. He bragged that they would win the US Heavyweight Championship and TV Championship, respectively, just to sort of show that how dominant they were. That led to many tag matches where they reunited superpowers, which is Koloff oh, okay. and Dusty Rhodes, who is the current U.S. champion. They have a bunch of tag matches where the two champs face them off. So then that's the lead-in for why Eden can get in the match. Okay. Having said that, it is funny that Dusty books this thing, this stuff to happen, then doesn't book himself in a respective match against um, Stan Lane. Yeah. I mean, I understand he thinks he's a big draw for the main event, but it's just funny. We're taking both of you guys out, and the only one of you guys, the guys that title match. Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. Cornette and Eaton both have very sparkly duds, and Cornette has his tennis racket in a fur-lined cover tonight. Considering that the arena doesn't look particularly full, probably due to the incorrect start time on the tickets, <laughs> Nikita Koloff still gets a pretty big pop when he's announced. Cornette immediately starts yelling at everyone in the vicinity as Caudle and JR have a really good discussion about the difference between Koloff's power-focused style and Eaton's speedy, high-flying style. Eaton surprisingly breaks clean on an early lockup, and Caudle nicely notes that he's pretty sure that was only because Eaton was afraid he couldn't get away in time if Koloff retaliated to a cheap shot. A later Eaton cheap shot proves exactly that as Koloff beats him down, and Cornette warns Eaton that Koloff is stronger, so Eaton has to be smarter and faster. Then goes back to verbally abusing the crowd and Koloff, who he calls Q-Ball. <laughs> Koloff works Eaton's arm as we hit the five-minute mark. They fight outside and inside the ring, and Koloff counters a ring post smash to send Eaton into it instead, and dominates with power, though Cornette's sure to pester the ref anytime Eaton's in control, telling him at one point that Koloff's shoulders have been down for 10 years, and at another to make Koloff give up because he's not going anywhere during a headlock. <laughs> Koloff gets big cheers as he builds to a power slam. Another trip outside leads to an eye poke that turns the tide for Eaton. Eaton takes solid control back in the ring with two counts off an elbow drop and a drop kick off the top rope. Must have consulted the Z-Man. Of course, yeah. That's by law. Cornette tells the chanting crowd to shut up and give him some peace and quiet for once in their lives. I mean, is he used to shows where they're super quiet? Is he like managing Japan and maybe, he's like, oh, maybe. so polite here. Yeah. Cornette is absolute gold in this match. He is absolutely, yeah. I think about halfway through it, you were saying, oh, he might have my MVP. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a strong contender for sure, yeah. Yeah. He even verbally abuses a cameraman just for getting close to him. <laughs> when Eaton gets a hammerlock, Cornette calls Koloff a jerk, idiot, moron, and bald-headed goof. That's just hurtful. <laughs> Five minutes left, and Cornette taunts Koloff to come after him. Koloff briefly gets free, but only grazes Eaton with the Russian sickle attempt. Eaton back to the hammerlock, and Eaton tells the ref that Koloff gave up. If you can't trust Bobby Eaton, who can you trust? A young Kevin Nash is watching. Yes. Like, I have an idea. Uh, yeah, there, there you go. He was like, man, that was such a great spot. I bet that'd be even better if we use that for the actual ending. 
And I'm definitely more trustworthy than Bobby Eaton's. Well, yes, yes. The two are in a stalemate as the crowd chants for Koloff, and Cornette plugs his ears. With two minutes left, Koloff gets free, but Eaton hits a vicious dropping armbreaker, and back to the hammerlock again. One minute left, and Koloff escapes, wins a slugfest, and batters Eaton, leading to the Russian sickle, but time expires as he goes for the pin. Time limit draw, Koloff retains. Cornette gets in the ring for a sneak attack, but Koloff just turns and looks at him, and Cornette screams and comedically Pratt falls back, dropping his racket. <laughs> Koloff scoops it up and stalks Cornette. Eaton interrupts and eats racket, but comes back with a kick, gets the racket, and goes to town on Koloff as Stan Lane runs out to hold Koloff for racket shots. Lane oddly has a muscle shirt that's tied up in the back. It's a weird look. <laughs> yeah. Cornette holds the ref back as Lane kicks Koloff out of the ring. Thoughts on this one, Al? It's good. Um, it's an interesting one because it, I really iffy on the time limit draw aspect of these matches. I know it's kind of a TV title thing, which is like yeah. a bit of a pass. But it's weird that it's not the way it normally goes, though. If this was reversed, like if this is Koloff going after Eaton, who's the champion, and he, you know, he narrowly loses via time limit draw, that fits the mold of what they do this normally. We had that with Regal, for instance, would do that a lot. Yeah, I thought exactly the same thing on looking back at this. It was like, their timing was great and everything. They did the spot really well, but what's the point of it? The babyface is the one that has the title anyway, so why not just let him get the pin? Yeah. Because I remember there's one Regal match we haven't covered yet, where it seems like they're going to do the time limit draw, and then he abruptly just actually pins the guy with like two seconds left. Right, yeah. You were like, oh, that's a good version of that. Yeah, it's you're expecting it so much that it'd be a cool inversion. It's just like, wait, why why don't you just give him the win? He'll look stronger. Exactly, yeah. I've read some critiques of this match, and a lot of people I've seen will complain about how long the um, rest holds are in this. But for me, it wasn't. Honestly, that was not a big deal. The rest mm-hmm. hold aspect for me, I thought worked fine because they were always active. That's true. Yeah, there were no bear hugs, which is a <laughs> An issue for a lot of people, myself included, and <laughs> no, I know you. Yes. And there were definitely long stretches where it's an arm block, but there's always like fighting up and then knocking back down. They're, they're always moving. I mean, if you're not into old school wrestling, you might find that part really boring. But for me, I thought it worked because they were dynamic enough in how they did it. I liked the way that it was really evenly contested as well, because Kolov is obviously very strong, and they show that right away. But then they find a way to get eaten in control reasonably, playing fast and loose with the Rugals and having Cornette distract people helps too. They really build up, I noticed on the second watch for it, that Eaton's punches are really strong. So Eaton's sort of, sort of not cool off down more than you might think. So that's explained how he can keep him in control, essentially. Yeah. For me, the strongest part of this, especially because there's no winner, is definitely Cornette. Oh, yes. Yes, Absolutely. He's either always on camera or he's always camera adjacent, which I think is like an instinctual thing for him. He knows where the camera is at all times and knows to be near it. Mm-hmm. So when he's berating someone, you, even if you don't see him, like if they're actually watching the match, you'll hear him. Yeah, he has terrific awareness. He's also good about knowing, knowing if they're going to cut to him, he has to be reacting, mm-hmm. which is really good. He's on 100% of the time for this. But yeah, I liked it. My only issue is... Because it runs so long and there's no winner, it feel, just feels weird for Koloff to not be able to put away Eaton, who I get they want to build a strong competitor, and I, I like him, but he's also a tag team guy. Yeah. So yeah, it's just kind of strange that Koloff can't 
put him. And you could say, I mean, the the fact that he takes Koloff all the way to the time limit, yeah, is enough buildup. I mean, if if he even if he does end up getting pinned at the very end, Mm -hmm. I think you can still have him say, "Look, I took you to the limit. You only got the pin at the last second. That's or I mean, he's a heel. He could even say something like, "Oh, I thought the bell rang." Yeah, I stopped writing, you know, something like that. I could see something like that, sure. The commentary team tries to put a weird spin on this. I don't know if it's what they're going for. They put the spin that maybe Eden could have won if he wasn't focused on trying to get Koloff to give up. Yeah, I actually, I, I heard that too, and I actually liked that discussion a lot. Okay, he clearly had a strategy there. But was it the right strategy for this opponent? Mm-hmm. So it's not that Eaton was incapable. It's that maybe he came in with the wrong plan for this particular opponent. If he looked for like a knockout blow on him after he got him weakened, he might have been able to do it. Yeah. Also, I, I do have to credit Eaton a little bit on on that. He puts on the hole, but he does actually continually try to lever Koloff into pins with it as well true, from true, time yeah. to time. So that that's a point where I think the commentary team could have maybe called that out a little bit better. But I like their overall discussion on that point. It again got to the idea of looking at this actually like strategically. What do you want to do in a match? I always love when they do that in commentary. Yeah, that's one thing I thought that aside from his issues and distractions, people like Ventura did really well. Yes, absolutely. Ventura would would really put that aspect into there. Yep. So if that if that was the goal, I think they nailed it, but that's not super clear. If they had like an after match promo like between segments like for in the cage, for instance, you could have a cornet berating, you know, Eaton or something for trying to do submission or vice versa, you know, Eaton yeah. is mad at Cornette saying, You said he'd tap out or give up. Yeah. And he didn't, you know, actually I could have won it if I kept striking more than grabbing. Yeah. It's left for the viewer to digest what maybe they're going for. Just I don't know, it's the best strategy at this point. But all it was pretty good. Yeah, for me this was the Jim Cornette show. Yes. Cornette, like you said, constant presence outside the ring for this one, and his interaction with the fans and with Koloff helps the match a lot. By the end of it, I wanted so badly to see Koloff deck him, but the pratfall was actually an even more awesome payoff. Yeah. <laughs> As for the match itself, like you were saying, uh, there is quite a lot of time spent in holds in this match, particularly the hammerlock. Yes. But they do a pretty good job of making those interesting. They are active during them. It's just that I did find that the way that Koloff gets free gets pretty repetitive. He does the same thing a number of times to kind of work his way out of it. The holds do last a while, and it's a little bit repetitive, especially with it often being the same hammerlock, too. Mm, Yeah, I can see that. But at the same time, there's enough strong character here from both wrestlers and from Jim Cornette to make it all really work well. Yeah. Eaton does a lot of little things right with his performance, and it does make it feel like he's fighting for leverage for a pinfall a lot. And Koloff has just tremendous presence, and he always feels like he could be dominant if he could just get free. So with people like Koloff, I joke about how you can see a lot of Goldberg. Yes. With saying that, and I still agree with that, seeing Koloff when he takes big bumps, like when he takes like a drop kick or a punch, he almost takes too big of a bump for him. Like he takes mm-hmm. a punch and like dives out of the ring. I mean, regardless of his size, it's like, I'm not sure that punch really did that to you, but... Yeah, he's he's very generous with his opponent, actually, considering his uh, his size, to the extent where maybe he should be a little bit less generous. Yeah. So, it's good, but I think if you gave it a little bit more variety and an actual pinfall, it'd be better. I, I agree, yeah. Two days later, at a live event taping on January 26th, Kia Koloff would lose the TV title to Mike Rotunda. Oh, okay. 
That's right. It's a January title switch. <laughs> At least it's not because of like an injury or something, right? No, no. Okay, good. As far as I can tell, it's not. Not a, not a true January curse, just a... No. <laughs> so on the following show, the Game Master Kevin Sullivan comes out with his two members of the Varsity Club, which are Rotunda and Rick Steiner. Rotunda, at this point, is holding both of the championships now, because he's the current Ford Heavyweight Champion. He says that the Varsity Club is very giving, so he just hands over his Ford Heavyweight Championship to Rick Steiner. Right. And that sets up, in the long term, that match we have at the Starcade for this year. The great Starcade 88 match between the two of them, yeah. Correct. Yeah, that, that one was fun. I remember that mm, one. Absolutely. Very fondly. So, obviously, the odd man out here is Bobby Eaton, aside from his tag team run. Yeah. Because you look at a match like this, you're like, okay, this is obviously showing Eaton can nearly win the other match right away. But instead, they bait and switch you and have Koloff lose the title to Rotunda, and then just fully cut off that story. Weird. Much like with 92 Starcade, I believe. Where it's like, man, that match between um, Ron Simmons and Dr. Death. I can't wait to see them wrestle again with the title. Oh. No, never mind. Yeah. Again, why not just let him win? Yeah. If you're not building to anything, and if Eaton's just going to be a tag wrestler still, why wouldn't you just go ahead and let uh, Nikita have the win? Just like on that one, why wouldn't you just let Ron Simmons have the win? Especially in this case, because if you've decided that Nikita's going to lose to Rotunda, which I assume you would have, it's only two days later, Yeah. you would want him to be as strong as possible so when he loses... Because, of course, it's screwy fashion. It's Kevin Sullivan sneaks in and hits him with something, some sort of object they don't make clear in the video recap. You want to be as strong as possible there, so it is being screwed over really makes you, you feel bad. Right. You're like, man, if you got to fight fair, you go to one. Yeah, exactly. But the last match is in, he fights competitively, mind you, but not decisively beating somebody. Right. But yeah, so Eaton's the odd man out here because the feud just abruptly stopped because of the title switch. I will say Eaton does get a TV title run. It's just not till 1991. That's a okay. little ways off. A little bit, a little bit. He, at this point, is the current U.S. tag team, but as mentioned with Stan Lane, the Midnight Express. Mm-hmm. They would actually lose their titles only in February. As a bonus, the team they lost them to would eventually break up in May of the same year and just leave the company, and the titles would be vacant for about nine months. Okay. The winner is clearly not Bobby Eaton. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's all I can say. Poor guy. Yeah. We go back to the commentary team, and Cottle and JR go over the events of the match as Cornette and the Midnight Express just waltz on by behind them, and Lane flexes and mugs for the camera. He really, he really does want to be Alexa, doesn't he? Yeah, I, I swear, that guy should have just been a tag team with him. It would have been perfect. Yeah, absolutely. JR, like you were talking about before, questions Eaton's strategy of trying to force Koloff to submit, and then they throw to the next match. So our second match is Barry Windham versus Larry Zabisco with Baby Doll for Windham's NWA Western States Heritage Championship. The referee for this match is Dick Kroll. This is the first big match for Zabisco, who was famous for coming and going from companies year in, year out. That's kind of his thing. He only started appearing on TV shows at the beginning of 1988. But he has name value. So they bring him in, and he immediately starts feuding with Barry Windham over the title, who it is worth noting in a couple of his promos, Windham talks about how he nearly won the match at Starcade, the one against Dr. Death, and talks about how he's definitely going after the UWF heavyweight title. <laughs> Even though all records show the title was 
vacated the same night that matinee inclusively. <laughs> he even says something along the lines of, this is very real. Like, he's trying to convince himself that the title's still in existence. <laughs> yeah. Which is a little strange. Well, maybe he was slightly concussed on the uh, collision, too. Definitely, you know, we, we feel for Dr. Death with that. Oh my gosh, so much. At the same time, it, it did go both ways. Yeah. <laughs> it was a head, head-on collision there. I don't know how, how both that felt. I still cannot forget the sound of that. Mm. That's the, the noise that Dr. Death makes. It's like, oh, I've never heard you make that noise ever. <laughs> yeah. I think the closest thing we've had to that noise on the show is probably Cornette after that unfortunate fall. Yes. Yeah. Oh, man. That or Ric Flair randomly yelling and almost cursing at the camera, like yes. he likes to do when his back is attacked. But the most genuine one is, yes, yeah, definitely Cornette or Dr. Death there. Yeah. But yeah, so it's, it's really just that Zabisco is the new heel coming in. He's going after Wyndham, who's you know, trying to stay strong even though they didn't win his match before. Zabisco gets the same music from the show intro, but his Z jacket is pretty cool. Wyndham gets his own music, which sounds like the character select screen music from a fighting game. Yeah. He's wearing yellow with a red lightning bolt. Is he the reverse Flash? <laughs> It'd be kind of ironic since he's named Barry. That's true, yeah. <laughs> Baby Doll gets in Wyndham's face, but the ref forces her to leave, and we're off. Zabisco taunts Wyndham and dodges around, but Wyndham gets the early advantage with an arm drag, shoulder blocks, and a hip toss. But Zabisco gets a great single leg takedown. Wyndham roughly grates his forearm against Zabisco's face to make him break a leg hold. It looked more irritating than painful. Zabisco can't get anything going as Wyndham dodges a drop kick, counters a hammerlock with a cool flowing counter into a flip, and makes Zabisco pay for a cheap shot with a hard punch. That was a very loud sound on that one. Oh yeah, nice snap to it, for sure. And finally counters a spin kick with an atomic drop. Zabisco rolls outside to cool down. Back in, Zabisco gets another good single leg takedown and starts working the leg, grinding his elbow into Wyndham's knee to make him reel in pain. Wyndham gets a cool side roll into a pin for two, but Zabisco turns the match in his favor with a variety of vicious leg holds. Wyndham gets a comeback with an enziguri that hurts his knee further, a loud punch, and a power slam for two but Zabisco dodges a top rope elbow by a country mile yeah. and uses more painful-looking leg holds and a dangerously sloppy-looking backbreaker. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. Wyndham counters with his long reach and strength, including an amazing one-handed belly-to-back suplex. Oh, that's really good, yeah. Sloppy-looking Wyndham suplex as well, where he basically drops Zabisco on himself, but it might have been Wyndham selling the leg. I couldn't tell if that was actually a botch or not. Yeah, the commentators try to say that, like his leg gives out. Yeah. And I have seen worse suplexes, but yeah, by Wyndham's standard, that's, that's a bad suplex. Yeah, it didn't look comfortable when Zabisco's head kind of lands on Wyndham's shoulder there. Mm, yeah. Wyndham gets two off a side suplex and dominates a brawl outside, but Zabisco sends Wyndham into the post and blocks him from getting back in until Wyndham pulls him crotch first into the post. <laughs> JR tells us that'll make you sing tenor in the church choir. <sighs> that's not the same thing as soprano jr he's not great in latin no <laughs> zabisco collapses on a whip and wyndham hurls himself out of the ring on a missed lariat how zabisco slams him onto a table outside and just goes back inside table spots are not really a thing yet i guess no, not for a few years anyways, yeah. That that felt weird, didn't it? It's like, 
oh yeah, he's going to do something. Oh, oh no, they're not doing that yet. It's the 80s. <laughs> then they keep expecting like a ref to call him off or something, and that's why he doesn't do it. But no, yeah. just yeah, it doesn't do it. They trade two counts off a nice series of counters before knocking heads on a running sequence and going down. Zabisco misses a flying knee and hits the turnbuckle, and Wyndham punches him around the ring, but accidentally whips him into the ref. The ref is out, and Wyndham clearly saw that happen, yes. but tries a roll-up anyway. Baby Doll counts the pin, and Wyndham thinks he's won, so Zabisco clocks him with the deadliest of all weapons, Baby Doll's high-heeled shoe. Wyndham is out, and the ref wakes up to count the three, giving Zabisco the win and the most honored title in all of professional wrestling history, or rather heritage. Zabisco's <laughs> so too busy celebrating to accept his belt until he looks over and finally snatches it from the ref. <laughs> Thoughts on this one? I like the previous match. I like that it's strong and sort of that old school wrestling feel or wrestling, mm-hmm. as I'm sure Jim Cadet would call it. We've had a few Zabisco matches, and they've been all over place as far as time and like placement. Because we have him, what, three years from now at that interesting Starcade match. He has the 91 match where he somehow manages to make something out of a match involving Elegante. Yes. And uh, then we have him on the Bischoff match in 98? Is it 97? 97, 97, yeah. yeah. So we never get him at the right point, basically, up until now. Yeah. So I said before with those matches that he really nails the character aspect well. Yes. And obviously in one he's playing a heel, one he's playing a face. But I never felt like his offense sort of was even with his character. Those matches, mind you, he needs a real strong opponent to make it all work. And obviously, one of the people he had in that 91 match is Elegante, so he didn't have that. Right. This is definitely better to see him. It's like seeing young Dick Slater. I'm like, oh, he's actually really good if I see him before injuries, you know, unfortunately broke his body down and other things happened. But it's nice seeing him a few years younger anyways and in a spot where he can really shine. Because Wyndham, even though he's not super strong on character, promo-wise, I mean, he's just big old Texan guy, he... Makes a good, reliable face, like especially this kind of era of wrestling. Absolutely. I mean, he has really great offense mm-hmm. and just a dynamic, honestly, like really dynamic style where he can do a lot of different things, Wyndham does. Yes. I, I agree with you that it's like Zabisco is making up kind of a character deficit on Wyndham's end to some degree. And Wyndham just has that really strong offense that Zabisco can play off of, it feels like. Yeah, because Zabisco is good at sort of wearing people down, and he just loved to stall. That was his big heel thing. He would stall and turn it away, and then lure you into a trap. So when you have a weaker opponent, or at least a less interesting opponent, that makes the matches feel longer and less interesting, because when they get control, it's just it's not any flashy or exciting, and you're just waiting for the next, eh, it's okay, move. At this point, this combination really works, because like I said, Wyndham is very dynamic with his offense. He's also pretty creative with it, using his size as well, which is nice. Yes. I liked that also the commentators made a point of noting that Wyndham, his height, gives him great reach, and they really make use of that at a few points during the match, Mm -hmm. whether it's the strength of the one-handed suplex or just there's one point where Zabisco has his leg and Wyndham is still able to punch free because he just has such a long reach. Their dynamic is really good here. Mm -hmm. Even if like if you've never watched wrestling before and you just watch this for whatever reason, you'll be able to tell without having seen any matches of them who the bad guy is, who the good guy is. They make it very clear, mm-hmm. and it's really nice in that regard. And the match, thankfully, doesn't suffer because of Zabisco's sort of character stuff or stalling and stuff like that. It really works all together. I will say the part where they're outside the ring is kind of long. 
and just is kind of weirdly abrupt with like setting on the table and then walking away a bit is a little weird. Yeah. So the maybe part in the middle is a little bit slow, but overall I think yeah, when when it's Wyndham fighting for control and then getting back and trying to keep it up, I think that really works very well. Mm-hmm. This one of those nights where there's really not clean finishes throughout obviously only four matches, that's a spoiling thing. So I I don't know, I should be grading a curve a bit because this has a <laughs> you know, ref bump and then a knockout and like weapon and all that stuff. I will say though, it think it works. There's some of those where it just feels cheap. Like you wrestle a good match and then black rough out, hit him with something, and then bad guys win. This all feels earned. And more importantly, it feels like whether it goes anywhere or not, it feels like it's building up to more matches between them. Yes. It feels like if I was watching this when it happened, I'm like, oh, when I'm definitely going to fight him next week or fight him next month, you know, when they come to our town, et cetera, et cetera. It feels like it's great to really start the feud and keep it going versus just abrupt finish to have, you know, whoever you like or. Yeah. Uh, for, for me, I think the only problem that I had with the ending was that it seemed like they screwed up the timing just a tad. Mm. I feel like Wyndham's supposed to kind of like almost immediately go into the roll up. Maybe, yeah. So that he doesn't actually see the ref go down, where you can tell he actually does get a look at the referee going down from it. So it doesn't make enough sense that he thinks he's won when he hears Baby Doll counting the pin. Sure, absolutely, I can see that. But I think the the plan for the spot, I didn't really have a problem with. No. Aside from my general questioning of high-heeled shoes being effective weaponry, but... <laughs> yeah, golden crowbars, absolutely. But yes, yeah. high-heeled shoes, I don't know. I really liked this one. There's some points, I feel like, where it does get a bit repetitive. The headlock into a whip into a shoulder block spot comes up a few times, for one. Sure. And there's a few moves that don't quite go smoothly. But overall, it was a nice match, and it was designed pretty well. Built around a variety of leg holds from Zabisco and some really hard strikes and good power moves from Wyndham. There are some flubs here and there, but Zabisco's character and viciousness and Wyndham's impressive speed and power made this a really fun watch for me. And like you were saying, Al, it was really cool to see a full Zabisco match in his active wrestling days for once, rather than him trying to put together a story around Elegante or do what he could in his retired days against Eric Bischoff. Yes. It's a fun match, and its visible flaws are balanced out by its really good storyline and the extra effort that both showed in making the holds look really fierce. That's a point where they did better in this one than the first match did. The first one, they were active during the holds, but they didn't really do a lot to make them look like they hurt mm. that strongly. I can see that. Where in this one, Zabisco really wrenches on every single one of them, and Wyndham throws himself into the selling. So it feels like at any moment, Zabisco could potentially earn a submission, Yeah, which, which really helped. They also, I think, benefited from the fact that they had like the, the injury storyline to go off of with Wyndham, where he has an injured knee. And so Zabisco has a very clear part to be targeting and decides to do it in a variety of different ways, where the first match was very reliant on a particular hammer lock. Mm-hmm. This one is, he does something that looks like kind of a midway between a Boston Crab and an STF at one point. That was interesting. Yeah. He has a couple of different toe holds that he does in different ways, changing between different leg holds frequently. So he never lets it just stay as one thing for an extended period of time. So even though it's a bunch of holds... It's varied holds, so there's still some interest to it, rather than it just being put on one thing, and then the interesting point is just seeing him fight free. On the tape show before this, 
Wyndham is defending the title against Tully Blanchard. Ooh. It's a good, it's a good match, yeah. That, yeah, I bet that would be awesome. They do a similar thing to the baby doll kind of the pin. The, they do a version of that. Tully's um, going to lose, and time's running close. Before he can make a big move, J.J. Dillon rings the bell and runs in, so to try to stop him from offense. Ah, okay. But then it gets really convoluted because, like, Suger, who's there as Wyndham's buddy, tells the ref that the timekeeper didn't ring the bell, but Dylan did, and they drag him over in front of the little tiny monitor at ringside where the commentators are at. And there's, like, four people crowded around this tiny monitor <laughs> just so he can see CJ and Dylan hit, ring the bell, which is maybe even funnier because if you actually watch it, you only briefly see it. They don't turn to Dylan, and you yeah. see him hit the bell. It's sort of in the corner of the frame. That's so like, come over and see it, you know, you really can't see it. Also, how many times is there an instant replay in wrestling? Very rarely. It's like, they got to be careful about introing those, because then you start questioning why it doesn't happen for every other match where a heel does something obviously bad. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Mentioning that, because it's interesting that they talk about how Wyndham's got to injure knee, but they don't say why or what from. Yeah. I guess they just assume you're watching all the shows. Yeah. It's kind of a shame, because it's a nice thing to help Motoli Blanchard, and it's part of a bigger story. It's part of the Luger horseman thing as he broke up with them. Yeah. It's just kind of a shame they don't actually elaborate on that match at all, <laughs> even just in passing. Oh, um, I mentioned earlier that there is a Sting appearance during the show. Okay. Well, it happens actually during this match. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so there's a shot where they pan towards um, Larry Zabisco in the corner, like sort of begging off Wyndham, and they pan upward past him, and you can see in the marquee the arena is announcing future shows. It uh-huh. says, like, a person's name and then this. And it literally says, Sting, February 7th. <laughs> Obviously, different Sting. But there is a Sting appearance on the show. That is hilarious. I nearly missed that. I'm like, wait, wait, did I see Sting somewhere? And they went back. Oh, there it is. <laughs> That's great. So he is on the show in, in, in spirit. Yes. That makes you feel any better. A little bit. <laughs> a little bit. Okay, good. So, as I think they mentioned before... The NWA Western States Heritage Championship, which I mostly just wanted to say the name of again. Yes. I uh, only had one title holder up until this show. So now we have a second one. So what's the second holder going to do? The short answer is uh, nothing. Okay. So Larry Zabisco, he is with the company for a while. But the thing is, mind you, we're on a much more condensed pay-per-view schedule versus infancy of pay-per-view. So it's not like a show where they have 11 or 12 shows a year. Right. But that said... On the first show, big show they have of the year, he wins the title, and then Zabisco is not on... I looked. He's not on any of the pay-per-views or appearances, because he's not in Star 88. He's still with the company. He's not in any of Greg and Merrick Bash shows, as far as I can tell. Again, still with them. Interesting. He just is around. I'm sure he's wrestling on TV, but there's no pay-per-view, like, big match they build up to someone can title back from him or challenging him for it. And in fact, he would leave the company in January... Of 89. <laughs> okay. There's a point in, I think it's during the intro, I think they say Larry Zabisco is in his 14th year's career and he's looking for, like, looking for a big title, I think is how yes. they say it, something like that. I don't know if this is intentionally a dig, but he is a former AWA world champion at this point. Ooh. <laughs> so, I would imagine that was intentionally a dig, yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, he, 87, he held it. It's like the year before he came over, he, he was a world champion there. Yeah, JR at some point says something like, uh, Larry Zabisco in his 14th glorious year has finally won a major championship. Yeah. And he's already an AWA world champion. Yes. Oh my gosh. 
Wow. Um, he goes to AWA after this for who knows what reason. Primich immediately wins the AWA world title again. <laughs> and he hangs around there until the end of 1990, where company's not going well, and I'm guessing checks maybe aren't clearing. And he just stops showing up. And he so he's also the final AWA world champion in 1990, and the company falls in 91. Don't you love that? I mean, th- not only is that a slap from Jim Ross at the AWA there, but the it's an extreme one, because he's saying the AWA world title is not a major title, mm-hmm. but the Western States Heritage title is. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's great. As far as Wyndham, his career takes an interesting turn because sort of building off the story they've been going like with the Tully match before this, they're building up the pairing of Luger and Wyndham as challengers for the Four Horsemen. And obviously, we saw that on the technically the last show we aired, even though it wasn't the last one we recorded. Yeah, where they're challenging for the tag titles. That was a good match. Mm-hmm, it was. So that's that's where his story is going. Sadly, he's lost the prestigious Western States Heritage Championship, but is going for the tag titles and other titles throughout the year. Okay. We get a replay of the end of Zabisco versus Wyndham, and Flair pushes Hawk into the corner. Yeah, what? what? <laughs> Thinking of time displacement. <laughs> yes. I think this is our first time seeing this, but the WWE Network notes that this show is presented in as complete a form as possible due to technical difficulties with the original production. So we join our third match. uh, It looks like it's towards the beginning, but we join our third match in progress. So unfortunately, that means we probably missed a Ric Flair robe. Oh, we did probably, didn't we? That's sad, but sacrifices had to be made. Yeah. So our third match is Ric Flair with J.J. Dillon. Versus Road Warrior Hawk with Paul Ellering for Ric Flair's NWA World Heavyweight Championship. The referee for this one is Dick Kroll. Basically, so we're coming off of Starcade 87, where Ric Flair, they decide to take the title off him and just to give him the title back. Because I guess that was more interesting to see him win a title again than just retain it against every single person in the company. Yeah. So he's now won the title back from on Garvin. They've been doing tag matches where Flair and Anderson are wrestling the Road Warriors, which I'm sure is a good match. <laughs> but of course, it's the Road Warriors, so they don't actually pin Ric Flair or Anderson in those matches. They win via disqualification. Yes. And that sets up the title match, apparently. Maybe it's made explicit to other places that I couldn't find that the because the Road Warriors won a match involving Ric Flair, and even though they didn't actually pin him, that that got them a title shot, and then Robert Animal was clearly going for the Bunkhouse Stampede Championship, or whatever you want to call this whole thing. So it's like, well, I'm going for this thing, so I guess you can fight Flair. Yeah. I hope it's l- less dismissive than I said that, but that's basically <laughs> the, as far as I can tell. Maybe it was like they, they were given him the choice, and they turned to Animal, and he did his normal uh, Road Warriors promo, tell him Hawk, and Hawk was like, well, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting yeah. Well, I'm getting a world title match. Oh, <laughs> I should have seen that coming. Well, the few things I could find related to this match, as far as build up from promos, is on the show right before this 23rd taping or the airing for it rather. There's a promo between Hawk and Animal talking about what they're going to do at the Bunkhouse Stampede show. Animal's always going to win the half a million dollars from the Bunkhouse Stampede finals because he's been really dominant in these things. And Hawk goes on his usual sort of rambling tirade 
about Flair. And at one point, he has a very odd exchange in which he basically says, The difference between you and me, Ric Flair, is if we were to make a bet for a thousand dollars and I was to lose, I wouldn't pay you. If I was to win the bet, I'd get my money. I guess he's a terrible person. Yeah, I don't like, know. What, what does that. that mean? I I can only assume that he actually meant to say something like, "If I lose, I'd pay you," mm-hmm. and if you lose, I'd get my money because I'd beat you up, mm-hmm. even though you wouldn't. He's like trying to imply that Flair is dishonorable. Yeah, and he'd have to get the money or something like that. I think is what he's going for. Maybe, but it comes out exactly the opposite. Yeah. It reminds me of the infamous uh, Captain America line, where they yes. screw up the order of his and line. And brother, it won't be me. Yeah. Yeah. What was it leaving under their own steam? And brother, it won't be me. It's like, oh. Yeah, that that's a great, great bit. Hawk destroys Flair with his sheer power, ignoring his chops utterly. And Flair bounces off Hawk in a shoulder block and gets military pressed, rolling out and selling for the nosebleed section as Dylan signals for a timeout. Back in, it doesn't go any better for Flair, as Hawk earns a Flair flop with a headbutt and dominates with a big rope-assisted jumping stomp, a nice dropkick, and a fist drop. Flair rolls out and calls for Dylan, but Hawk suplexes him right back in and gets an elevated bear hug, lowering Flair for three two counts. Hawk hits a high-velocity flying shoulder block, and Flair rolls out again. JR proposes that Dylan should lay hands on Flair to heal him. J.J. Dillon is not the wrestling character I would have expected to be a paladin. No, no. (laughs) Hawk beats up Flair outside, even ignoring a barricade smash, but back inside, Flair slugs him in the balls. That does the trick. (laughs) Flair takes control with eye rakes, barricade smashes, knee drops, and even a double axe handle from the top rope that actually hits. (laughs) It's amazing. A high knee drop gets two, but Hawk hurls Flair skyward on the kickout. Hawk neckbreaker, but Hawk lands on his knee when Flair dodges a fist drop, and Flair pounces, working the knee to damage it further. Ellering accidentally distracts the ref when Flair taunts him, so Flair punches Hawk in the balls again. (laughs) Ellering goes after Dylan, but goes back to encourage Hawk. We get a terrific, insufferable grin from Dylan there. (laughs) As he's backing away from Ellering, he just has this huge smile on his face. It's great. Oh, yeah. (laughs) More leg abuse, and Flair taunts Hawk, hitting a belly-to-belly suplex before smashing Hawk's leg into the ring post. One last kick to the knee, and he puts on the figure four leg lock. Flair sneaks in rope grabs when the ref isn't looking. Hawk drags Flair away from the ropes with a mighty effort, and slowly turns the hold over, putting the pressure on Flair instead. Flair supercells that, and gets the ropes. Both are limping now. Flair tries a top rope move, but karma happens. (laughs) Hawk manages an excellent intimidating slow walk to Flair even while he's limping yeah that's true Hawk rebounds on a corner whip and knocks Flair and the ref down with a clothesline the ref is out and Hawk sends Flair out of the ring with another clothesline then wins an outside brawl by sending Flair into the post Flair is bleeding back in a Hawk power slam has Flair begging for mercy but Hawk has none to give (laughs) eye poke by Flair but he goes up top because Flair never learns. Hawk superplexes him down for like a 10 count, but there's no referee. (laughs) Yeah. Dylan breaks it up with a chair shot to Hawk, but that just makes Hawk mad. Hawk chokes Dylan, but Flair smashes Hawk in the face with the chair. 
The ref crawls in to count, but Hawk sends Flair flying at two. Flair gets a nice stalling suplex, but Hawk no-sells and earns a flare flop with corner punches. Flair grabs the chair and blatantly hits Hawk with it in front of the ref to draw the DQ. Hawk wins, but Flair keeps the title. Hawk no-sells and goes for the chair, but Flair grabs him, so Hawk flings him to the corner and he goes end over end before rolling out and fleeing. Hawk celebrates for the fans, but is very clearly miffed. Thoughts on that one? Um, so it's a weird one for me because it's, um, I don't know, it's a really good flair performance. He's doing all the hits. Yes. He's the cowardly heel, you know, he says the chops that don't work, the flopping and even flipping out of the ring, um, definitely needing help. On Hawk's side, Hawk's good as far as just sort of being intimidating, scary looking. He absolutely nails that. And like anyone questioned his ability to intimidate. I don't know, just for me, there's not much underneath that. Hmm. Like, if you look past just the fact that they're sort of going through the motions and doing all the standard stuff, there's, like, no meat to the match, really. Hmm. It's clotheslined. I don't know. I'm not saying it's bad. It's just, yeah. I don't know. There's so much more nuance in the previous two matches. Yes, I will. There's selling, that. and then there's stuff like that, whereas this is, Hawk won't go down. Oh, Hawk is down now, but then you have to sort of keep him down, and then the DQ finish is... I don't know. Yeah, it's never, it's never good for me. It's a bit of a flair formula match. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's I don't say. Yeah. It's it's not a bad flair match. It's just there's nothing extra here. Mm-hmm. Hawk is good at sort of being the intimidating guy, but he doesn't have that sort of intangible that face Luger will have at the end of this year, where you really want to see him overcome the odd because you like him, or you know, Ricky Steamboat obviously being the best at the <laughs> flair comparison. This is closer to the. Flair Koloff match we had in '86. I can see that. Yeah. To be fair, though, that match, the history of that, was sort of put together fairly last minute, and they had to be rebooked. So I can understand them doing a by the hits thing, especially given the relative inexperience that Koloff had at this point. Yeah. And the quick transition of Koloff from "I hit America" to "Well, I don't like America," <laughs> in a more casual, upward reflection sort of way. Thus, he supports me. So that's all. All you need to know, audience. Pretty much. Yeah, that's the way they play it. Yeah, because I don't want to be too down the match. It's just, it is pretty lengthy. I I think, for comparison, like the first match and maybe the second match to a certain degree aren't the ones you would show to someone if they're not a fan of old school wrestling. There's more nuance and it's slower with hold and this and that. Whereas this is one that he could show to someone who doesn't watch wrestling because it's all very loud and visible. Yeah. So you don't have to know the more nuanced of a character in a character. You see this giant, scary guy trying to take down this really sneaky guy that you want to see beaten. Even if you've never, never seen Ric Flair before in your life, when you see him beating, you're like, okay, clearly I want to see him lose to this guy. Yeah, if, you, if, you're not, if you're not sure who's the good guy or the bad guy, the ball shot changes that pretty yes, quickly, right? Exactly. Generally speaking, yeah. It's interesting. I, I guess I would call this a very comfortable match. Mm-hmm. Feels weird to say that after I mentioned the ball shot, but... <laughs> Like you said, it doesn't necessarily take any risk. It's very solidly a Flair versus Strong Babyface formula match, but it's a formula that does work. Yeah. Hawk looked incredibly strong and intimidating the whole way, and Flair did his usual amazing job working the knee and setting up for and using the advantages provided by the figure four. What I did find really good in this one, personally, was that even when he was selling, 
Hawk still got to look strong. Sure. With powerful kickouts and some comebacks. It was a nice touch. He does look like he's struggling, especially once the leg is hurt, but he never looks like Flair's really going to get him down until maybe the chair shots. Yeah. So it did really do a lot to build up Hawk as a singles competitor, and Flair did his best to make him look amazing. I do question why this couldn't have had a definitive ending. Mm -hmm. I know that they want to build up Hawk, but maybe do it with, well, the ref's out, Flair and Dylan just lay in even more chair shots while the ref is down, and Hawk just does stay down uh, rather than kicking out of that last pinfall. See that. Or at least just do a less underwhelming feeling DQ. It just really came out of nowhere for me, just an unceremonious chair shot, rather than it feeling like it grows naturally from the story. Yeah. Still, except for a poor ending and maybe a little bit too much rolling out of the ring, I had fun with this one. I thought it was really a fun match. And it was very cool to see Hawk get a major singles title shot. Mm-hmm. I was reading someone talking about the show, and when they said it was pretty good point, said, well, this match was a terrible match. The outcome is never once in doubt. Fair point. Fair point. Yeah. It doesn't feel like Flair's going to lose his title to Hawk. Yeah. Which is weird because that whole match is him fighting upwards and you think like the trip's going, but yeah, yeah, you sort of know. I could maybe see myself feeling slightly differently about that if this was 1988, though. Mm. Specifically because 1987 was when he lost it to Ron Garvin. True. So we've had recently a fairly unexpected player title loss. I could see people coming into this and thinking, you know, Hawk might do it. Yeah, I can see that. Just just in the time. When we look at back at it now, not so much. Right. But I could see just in the time that actually feeling much more in doubt, just based on exactly when this was happening. No, yeah, because I could see a certain logic in that, yeah. Yeah. This is weirdly another case of them putting a specifically tag guy in a big singles match for a title, even though there's no plan to break up the tag team at all. Yeah. Or separate them, which is like, yeah, let's leave over a hawk at the match, why not? Well, it's, it's, it's a neat thing to do storyline-wise, I think, where you're like, you know, tag wrestlers might have their own singles ambitions as well, and they don't have... I like that, actually, where it's like, you know, they don't have to break up the tag team to do this stuff, where oftentimes you're like, okay, it's time for him to start his singles title career, and you get things like Shawn Michaels super kicking him and throwing him through the window, or just like you get tag team breakups. Yeah. And it's like, why can't you remain a part of a tag team and also pursue a singles title? Yeah. It doesn't seem like those should have to be mutually exclusive. I can see a certain logic in that, yeah. I think as far as judging this in the overall scheme of the show, maybe it's because knowing the next match has so many singles people in there. Like, maybe you could have swapped one of them out. I'm not much sure who necessarily. And they would have had both World Warriors in the main event together. Yeah. And that can be interesting dynamic. But you have, you have another tag team already in there. So you can continue their feud Animal and Warlord Barbarian both in the next match. They're feuding by the time of Clash Champions 1, our, again, our previously aired show, in that whatever the hell that match was thing. <laughs> if I remember, I think they were all in that, right? Isn't that remember that correctly? Uh, yeah, it's Dusty and the Road Warriors versus Ivan Kolov, the Barbarian, and the Warlord at Clash of the Champions, yeah. Thank you, okay. So, yeah, okay. In the Chicago, Texas street fight. Right. Looking at it as an overall thing, we had making more sense to have both the Road Warriors there just for that yeah. Again, whatever that six man convoluted mess was at Clash Champions. But yeah, you know, I'm not against Hawk having a title shot. I, just, I don't know. It feels weird in this show because you already had Bobby Eaton in the same situation. True. Yeah. We've already had the tag partner challenges for a singles title bit. 
Yeah, I, I can see that. I guess it's just a question of who do you put in that spot? They're working towards building Sting to be ready for it. And Luger's the long-term plan. And Luger's just kind of changed yeah. over to Babyface, so maybe they feel like he's not quite ready to do that yet. Yeah, I had, I had one thing that I had to look at everyone that they had available to really say that. Yeah, the yeah. List in front of me, obviously. I think to me, running theme throughout this show, or then it feels like this is a placeholder show. Yes, yeah. This is a really big house show, but it's not at the point where pay per view. This is a big thing's going to happen. Yeah, which definitely comes up. To be fair, it does become a bigger thing as years go on. Yeah, you expect big title changes, not screw finishes, pay per view, and maybe that's part of the transition here. Is this is a pay per view technically, but it's not treated as a different thing just yet. Right. So maybe historically speaking, I'm looking at it the wrong way. Who knows? The obvious long term build here is Flair and Luger who, in fact, would fight at the next pay-per-view. Mind you, the next pay-per-view is in July, so it's a little ways off still. That feels so weird, doesn't it, when you come back? <laughs> when you come back even from the 2000s, yeah. just hearing that is, is so strange. You had more than two months off for, from pay-per-view? What the hell? Yeah. This is real worth we live in. Um, as far as Hawk goes, obviously, as mentioned, they did not break up the Road Warriors. That didn't happen for quite a long time. They would continue their tag team ways. I believe at this point they're holding the six-man tag team champions, which is I covered, I think, on the very first recording yes. of the complicated nature of that whole thing. Yes. Yeah, all of that goes. We get a very lengthy replay of the whole chair shot suplex sequence from near the end of the match. And once their audio actually works, the commentators start talking about the cage assembly for the stampede match. JR and Caudle discuss the Flair versus Hawk match. And JR says Flair must be sighing in relief. And Caudle says Flair won't soon forget that match. They turn to the stampede and, oddly, immediately interrupt their discussion for the show credits. I don't miss these mid-show credits, I'll tell you that. Caudle even reads every single position and name, even the ones he clearly isn't quite sure how to pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> Such an odd sequence in the middle of the show. It is, yeah. JR notes the importance of the cage and explains the rules. This year's Bunkhouse Stampede is a battle royale fought in a cage where the goal is to throw your opponents out of the cage to the floor. You can throw your opponents through the door or out over the top of the tall cage. Jim Crockett Promotions crew is setting up the cage in record time, or so JR has told us, which means that we actually need to stall for time by showing replays of earlier match finishes. We need even more record time, so JR starts talking over the Bunkhouse Stampede competitors and notes that Rhodes has won the last two. As far as I could tell, he's actually won three of these things so far, so I'm very confused. Right. I might just be completely wrong on that, but who knows. JR notes that both Tully and Arn of the Horsemen are in the Stampede, as are three of the wrestlers that Paul Jones manages. Sadly, Sting is not. I'm still bitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So our final match is the Bunkhouse Stampede Finals. As I mentioned, they had a series of qualifying matches. None of them are on TV, by the way. There actually is one show. It's a couple weeks before this. I don't know what the exact date was. There's like five minutes left in the show, and they're suddenly cutting to a Bunkhouse match where they're all in the ring. It's not the cage version of it. Mm -hmm. And it's going, and I'm thinking, is this going to be really short? I'm like, nope, they just stop. The show just runs out of time, apparently, even though it's pre-taped. <laughs> So you get about three, four minutes of a bunkhouse match, and then it just ends, and they have no explanation who won or not. <laughs> if you won a bunkhouse match, you get to 
qualify for the main one, and then winning more, you get prize money. Like, that's how it works. Yeah. So, like, for example, where Admiral won one of them, so he gets prize money, but also he guarantees a spot there. They actually say that he's won the most of the Bunkhouse Stampede matches getting to this point, which is weird. That is what they say, yes. Okay, so the official list of people that won Bunkhouse matches along this vague amount of time to get to this show includes Robert Animal, as mentioned, Tolly Blanchard, Arn Anderson, Lex Luger, The Barbarian, The Warlord, Ivan Koloff, Dusty Rhodes, The Mighty Wilbur, <coughs> Big Wilbur Rogers, and Dr. Dusty Williams. Aww, we didn't get Dr. Death in here? So, three of those names are not in this match. Yeah. They do actually address Money Wilbur's absence. They don't show you what happened, but they cut to him in the hospital bed. And he says that he injured his knee battling one of the Bunkhouse Stampede matches. Presumably after he, I guess he'd won one of them and then fighting for more cash, he got injured. So they actually do explain why he's not there. Okay. While there is no explanation for why Big Bubba and Dr. Death are not in the match. Huh. That is notable for a number of reasons, but especially because... I watched the build-up to shows. They mentioned Dr. Destiny Williams, who brags about being the winningest wrestler in the match, having won the most bunkhouse matches. So, okay. <laughs> so that was his record until he's not in the match. And then it's Road Warrior Animals. Yes, because he's, <laughs> he's still in the match, apparently. That's bizarre. Yes. Okay. Now, the Dusty thing is there's a lot of stuff to pack with the Dusty thing. So he books himself to not winning the, the lead-up matches. Maybe he's trying to build the drama because, you know, he's won it two to three times, or maybe six, who knows at this point. <laughs> it's just, so, it's going to be a big deal that he qualified for the match, that he's definitely going to win because he's won it so many times. So they say on that same show that Dusty won a wild card match that took place before Mighty Wilbur's injury. So it's not like Mighty Wilbur's out and he's taking his spot, as far as I can tell. Huh. It's just separately they have a wild card match then all the people that didn't qualify, um, and he gets in that way. Whereas Big Bubba and Dr. Death just don't get to be in the match at all. Okay. The other thing I can note about Dusty winning the wild card is his wild card bunkhouse match was a unique one. I guess the idea was they want to make it harder, and storyline, make it harder to win this since you didn't win the previous matches to qualify. Really have to prove that you belong. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So the wild card bunkhouse match he won was also in a steel cage. Oh, okay. And the other ones were just without in the ring, the cage. yes. Okay. So, in theory, Dusty booked it so he'd have to win the harder match to qualify as a wild card. When in reality, he booked himself to get practice for the match he's going to be in. Fair point. He's the only one that's fought in the cage, yeah. Yes, exactly. Okay. Way to give yourself a free advantage. <laughs> yeah, it'd be interesting if they could find footage of these matches. They're not on the free TV shows at all. Not yeah. even like highlights. They just tell you who won these matches. So, to be quite honest with you, if someone, say Animal, did a shoot video and it said, actually, we didn't hold any Bunkhouse Stampede matches, I mean, I probably wouldn't believe him, but I also couldn't disprove what he said. Right, yeah. There's That's the thing. <laughs> there's only that little bit of footage from the one match that was starting up. Yeah. That's proof that these matches even existed now. Yeah. It's Rio de Janeiro all over again. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Or, to connect to Dusty, his um, title victory over Buddy Landell. Yes. Which also definitely happened. So I did, I did as much as I could to stall from that, having to actually discuss the bunkhouse match. For <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. You're welcome. <laughs> Our participants enter as the same music from Koloff and Zabisco's entrances plays. 
the winner of the wild card slot and U.S. heavyweight champion, the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, one half of the NWA World Tag Team Champions, four horsemen member, Tully Blanchard, with J.J. Dillon, from Paul Jones' army and the Soviet Union, the Russian bear, Ivan Koloff, with Paul Jones. Wait, so he's in two armies? Yes. Wow. He's wearing a shirt that says, the Friendship Games are superior, so that would be a reference to the 1984 Friendship Games organized by the Soviet Union and other socialist countries who had boycotted the 1984 Olympic Games. Burn? 1988 was also an Olympic year, and the Winter Olympics would be starting in February, so I guess maybe that's why he thought it was a topical reference for the time. So it gets a cold burn, then. Yes. But it makes sense, it's a cold war. <laughs> from Paul Jones' army, and not from the Soviet Union, the Warlord. The other half of the NWA World Tag Team Champions, Four Horsemen member Arn Anderson, who was, I guess, abandoned by Tully Blanchard. It was weird that they didn't just come out together. It is a little weird, yeah. Arn has, for some reason, decided to wear a Four Horsemen shirt that leaves his stomach exposed. Weird look, Arn. Oh, you know, gotta cut something to the ladies, man. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> the total package, Lex Luger, with big cheers. And from Paul Jones' army, the Barbarian. And finally, the man who won the most bunkhouse stampedes during the month of December. They actually qualify it, so maybe that's their way of getting around the Dr. Death thing. Road Warrior Animal with Paul Ellering. Animal wears a shirt advertising the creatively named The Gym. Oh. That's, that's all it says. <laughs> we get a cool light display over the crowd as we get an overhead shot of the cage. The horsemen have a bit of a chat, as do the members of Paul Jones' army. Luger, Dusty, and Animal line up on the other side, but don't look to be actually working together. We start off with brawling, with the horsemen and the army working against the faces and each other, and the faces largely only fighting the heels. And that's pretty much how it continues for a while. There are a few highlights. We get Arn garroting Ivan Koloff, Luger selling, <laughs> several cage smashes by various participants, but most of the match is people walking around the cage brawling. Tully climbs up top for no good reason and is nearly eliminated by Animal before Barbarian saves. Later, Ivan Koloff goes up top for no good reason and Barbarian saves him from Dusty. Barbarian tries to eliminate Dusty and JR gets a good line. The dream's having a nightmare. Well, he already had Cody, so I guess that makes sense. Ooh. Well, it's the American Nightmare. It wasn't actually a burn on Cody, to be fair. Was it Cody or was, I mean, didn't uh, Dustin use that too? I think he did at one point as well. Yeah. Yeah. The camera misses Animal saving Dusty and Arn taking a brain buster. Several people are bleeding, and JR says that Arn's face looks like chopped beef when Luger rakes it across this cage. We get an awesome spot as Luger catches Koloff's punch with his hand and crushes it with sheer might. So, of course, we immediately cut to something else. Of course. Off camera, Luger is beaten down by the horsemen and comes back, but we only get the end of that. Dusty livens things up by getting Tully's leather belt and going to town. I still can't believe we've got all eight in the ring, Cottle says. I agree. Just think it could have been 11. Yeah. I keep hearing people fall hard while the camera is watching other people. I'm pretty sure we're missing 90% of the interesting moments in the match. Yes. Animal fights off an attack off camera, and the camera cuts to him just as he's kind of looking around for someone else to fight. <laughs> Various people take a turn using the belt on other people, and Arm feels left out, so he takes off his boot, but the camera misses him doing anything with it. Ivan Koloff rakes the belt buckle across Dusty's arm. Ow. Luger gets the boot, but the camera cuts away again. Dusty is tied to the ropes. 
Luger got Tully in the corner somehow and grinds the boot in his face, and Animal springs into view in the background with the shoulder block on the Warlord. We get a funny shot of Dusty and Tully just kind of leaning against the ropes, right next to each other, both resting and neither seeming to care the other is there. Arn and Ivan Koloff fight off eliminations from Animal and Tully, respectively. Somebody's gotta go, and go soon, Caudle says. I agree. And blessedly, Animal somehow gets Koloff atop the cage and dumps him over for the first elimination. 16 minutes and 40 seconds into the match. Good. Gosh. Yes. Yeah, that's way too long. Oh, yeah. The camera actually catches Animal hurling Tully into Arn. Animal and Warlord fight by the door, but Barbarian kicks Animal, and Animal and Warlord both spill out, so we're down to five. Dusty and Luger versus the Horsemen for a bit, but Barbarian knocks Dusty down off camera. Luger with a power slam and torture rack on Tully, but Arn takes over with something the camera mostly misses, and Luger, Tully, and Arn struggle by the door with much wonderful Luger selling. Mm-hmm. Arn climbs out to the steps to try to pull Luger outside, and all three end up spilling out to the floor. Barbarian and Dusty are our final two. Jones slips Barbarian an object, and Barbarian decks Dusty, then hits a few falling headbutts from the top rope before trying to throw Dusty out the door. Dusty fights back with punches and elbows. Barbarian climbs up top for no good reason, and Dusty follows. Barbarian nearly lifts Dusty out, but Dusty slips free and levers him up top, then hits two roaring elbows to knock him down to the floor for the win. Dusty gets the trophy, which is a gigantic cowboy boot. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's why no one else won, and no one else wanted it. Yes. It looks absolutely ridiculous. Yes. Dusty celebrates with the gigantic cowboy boot trophy, and Jim Crockett hands over the winner's check for $500,000 to Dusty, and JR tells us that Dusty was contemplating retirement before this, but came back to fight for the USA. NWA number one, someone in the crowd shouts. They're a big fan of rap, I guess. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Uh, thoughts on this one? Wow, this match is just uh, so much. <laughs> so much. So much and so little, I would say. It's, it's so wonderful, isn't it, Al? That's what you're getting at, right? Yeah, that's where I was going with that, sure. Ah, <laughs> oh, jeez. Um, ah, my summary was long, slow, and nearly impossible to follow. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's funny, like... um. I've seen people critiquing movies, which is generally my forte. And you'll talk about like when a director that doesn't do action, when they do action for the first time, it's usually not that great because they're not used to shooting and blocking, you know, all the stuff you got to do to make fight scenes look good. Like if you compare the first Batman movie under Christopher Nolan, their action, as good as that stuff is, to say The Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises, there's a clear difference. Absolutely. Because he has experience shooting that kind of stuff. And that's kind of what this feels like. But I know that's not true. I can imagine they use new cameramen for a wrestling show. And you would think maybe the point of having so many bunkhouse matches, if they even existed, mind you, <laughs> I'm going with that crazy theory yeah. now that I started, is um, you have practice shooting this kind of thing. Like you do a practice for a rumble match and you practice regular matches so you know how to get spots down and get the blocking down, like I said. Right, yeah. If they did, they, they did not learn any lessons from this because it's just they constantly looked the wrong way at the wrong time. Okay, what sh- what show is it where they made a big deal of the aerial camera and the uh, eighty three, the very first one? Okay, and they've used that since then, though. Or once in a while, yeah. use the aerial camera. That is sorely lacking in this match. Yeah, and maybe there's a cut to it or not, but there's so many cuts to the other thing else. 
It's like it's directed by a really confused dog or a bird or something. <laughs> it hears a noise and looks in our direction. Maybe that's the problem. Luger sells so much. Anytime it makes a noise, it distracts where it's filming. <laughs> and they look the wrong way and then they miss a spot. Yeah, I think this is the single worst performance by the production crew that we have ever seen. As a cumulative thing, I would agree with that. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's like they are constantly missing what's actually going on in the match. They are constantly focusing on guys just standing there or doing basic punching, and you can hear something more interesting happening off camera. Yeah. So it seems like we miss about three quarters of the potentially interesting spots in the match over the course of the thing. Yeah, that's pretty fair. There's always sounds like there's something better happening off camera than on. Yeah. I have to thank Bob Cottle and JR uh, in this match, especially because they do actually call out a lot of the things that happen off camera. Oh, good. Quite well. So listening to them, you can still hear, oh, you know, Arn got hit by a brain buster, and that's why he's lying unconscious on the mat, even though in no way does any camera uh, angle during that sequence catch even the slightest hint of Arn taking probably the most punishing looking move in the match. <laughs> yeah. That happens several times over the course of the match that they really nicely managed to call out things that the cameras missed. So... I don't know, maybe give them the cameras and they'll be better about finding the finding the actual moves. Oh my gosh. There's lots of punching. The most they ever seem to focus on is people punching each other while leaning, leaning against or being near the cage walls. Yeah. Definitely need more Luger selling throughout the match. Yeah. I know it's hard to block out a match with so many people and weapons and all this stuff, but maybe keep Luger center of the ring and people fight around where he's at and what's going on. So you always get to hear it, at least. Yes. And he'll fight around Luger and, you know, to come back. Yeah, I was I was listening for those those blessed moments of Luger selling, because I was like, that gave me something to pay attention to. Yes. If I was describing this to somebody that had not, like, not a big wrestling fan, so they, you know, they would find technical matches like, you know, the Steamboat-Regal match boring, or at least not appreciate it the same way. I could tell them about this one like this. I'm like, yeah, it's eight guys in this cage, and they're fighting, and they're bleeding, and you get thrown over the top. They'd be like, well, it sounds good. And then they'd watch it and then wonder why I recommended anything to them ever again. Yeah, it sounds so interesting, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, the only way they could have made this match worse is if it was a scaffold match. <laughs> yeah. So I can see from that, it's not the worst it could be. It's fairly close, but yeah. It's just a shame, because it's... They act like it's so important. Like, here's this big tournament for half a million dollars, all these people involved, these feuds are overlapping, but you can't follow anything. And what you can, what they let you see is it's not interesting. Yeah. You keep waiting for something, and it's just, nope. You don't get to, don't to enjoy any of this stuff, I guess. Yeah, this was a bit of a mess. <laughs> yeah. There was kind of a semblance of a story there with three faces having to fight off two teams of heels, but nothing solid ever really emerged from it. Yeah. The cage, though it sounded interesting, actually limits the ways that people could be eliminated. Yeah. And it made the spots feel very contrived. There was always so much setup for each elimination with everyone having to get in just the right position. And it often didn't make any sense why they were going there. I mean, come on. If you know that one of the two ways that you can be eliminated is to go over the cage, why would you ever go up to the top rope? That's true. And yet, loads of people willingly climb up there. I'll give a slight pass to the people who end up coming off with top rope moves, especially Barbarian late match when it's just him and Dusty. Mm -hmm. But many others just blatantly climb up while their opponent is right next to them for no reason other than that they need to be up there to at least tease elimination. <laughs> the door spots are better because at least it makes sense that you might just end up by it during a fight. 
it makes for a dull match, especially when they take forever to eliminate even one person. Like you noted, Al, it's almost 17 minutes before Koloff is eliminated. Yep. If they spread out the eliminations more and kept up a steady flow throughout the full match, it would have been much more exciting. Instead, it kind of drags on until the eliminations finally start up, and once they do, they get rid of more guys by double or triple eliminations, which stops them from making any kind of back-and-forth story with faces or heels having more control. With the two heel teams in there and the faces that seem to work together a bit, this could have had some back-and-forth flow if, like, only one member of each side was eliminated every few minutes. Instead, it just meanders along with no sense of plot or tension. It's made far worse by the production difficulties that we talked about. Before watching this, I was really sad that we'd missed the Bunkhouse Battle Royale at Starcade 88, because mm-hmm. the Cowboy video from 86 led me to believe it might actually be kind of awesome. Yeah. I was sad to hear that this was the only one actually televised. Yeah, it's true. Now, I'm glad, <laughs> because it means I never have to see another one of these matches again. This was terrible. Yes, it was. Absolutely, absolutely terrible. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it's one of the matches where I feel bad for the people involved because they did put a lot of work in. They're hitting each other really hard and they're bleeding. And maybe um, Arn and Tully and Luca, for instance, had this whole thing worked out where they fight and they vault the door. They probably spent hours planning their interaction and all this. Absolutely. Get the timing yeah. right. And it's just, there's no good payoff for anything in this match. So I feel bad for the work they put into it to have it just not go anywhere. Yeah. I agree. It's like, you can tell that this took effort. You can tell that this was a match where people put a lot of work into planning, at least like the elimination spots, some of the teases, the bigger moves that the camera mostly misses. There's work put into planning this, and there's work put into performing it. It's a very physical match, and there's a lot of athleticism involved. There's a lot of uh, of, of stamina necessary for a, a long, chaotic match like this. And I think everyone is trying hard. It's just that they're sabotaged by the nature of the match itself. There's not that much that you can do to really make it interesting. And then you compound that with the massive production difficulties. And it's just like, I lost interest in the match. I think, what, like four or five minutes in? <laughs> yeah. I think I, I was starting to to struggle to pay attention to it while we were watching it. And just like... I started yelling at the screen just to eliminate somebody. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's it's really sad. I can tell they're actually working hard and they're trying, trying, trying to put on a good show, but everything about the match design and the production is working against them. You've got some of the best performers in WCW in that ring, and they can't do anything with this. Yeah. If I told you that a single match had the Road Warriors, Dusty Rhodes, Tully Blanchard, and Arn Anderson in it, and it sucked. Yeah. that It blows the mind to think about that. It does, yeah. And Lex Luger, by the way. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, him. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that That should not be terrible. And it, no. it somehow managed to be terrible. Absolutely. I believe that this is why this show is infamously called Dusty's Folly. Yeah. <laughs> For whatever reason, as you discussed with the, the, getting the timing wrong and moving a show like this to the New York area to compete with Vince McMahon. All sorts of things about this, yeah. So, the most notable thing storyline-wise going forward is obviously the stuff with Lex Luger and the Horsemen, having just broken away from them post-Starcade. He's definitely against them now, and as I mentioned, he'll team with Barry Windham to go after the tag titles, as well as Flair for the title on a number of shows, including one we cover, which is Starcade 88. 
as you mentioned, this is the final bunkhouse match. So no one gets to, you know, sort of get the rub from being dusty, like in the follow-up to this. It just kind of, it is what it is. However, this does lead to one amusing bit of television for a number of reasons. So in the show after this, like the very, literally the very next one, Dusty comes out, bring his New York Yankees jacket, by the way. He's given his other award for winning it, which is it's basically a belt buckle <laughs> that says Bunkhouse Stampede on it. I have a picture. It's great. So he's like comes out, you know, he didn't he's not carrying the boot with him, sadly. Oh. But they hand him a belt buckle and he just sort of sets it on the ring, ring apron, and they keep talking about how he's gonna do all this stuff. That leads to Baby Doll coming out. Baby Doll confronts him and says that he's gotta give the next uh, US championship shot to Lazy Bisco. Thus further questioning how important the Western State Terrier Championship is when Visco immediately wants another championship. Well, he just, he feels like he's on a roll. Oh, okay. This leads to a bit where Baby Doll hands an envelope full of incriminating material to Dusty, who looks at it, gives a over-the-top shocked reaction, and then walks away without explaining what it was. So the idea is that she's going to blackmail him to giving the Visco the first title shot. Okay. Like, wow, this is an interesting story. Where is this going? The answer is nowhere. <laughs> Outside of the storyline, Baby Doll is married to Sam Houston, who at this point is working for the WWF. And they feel the conflict of interest for her to be working with them where her husband is working for WWF. So she leaves the company and or is fired. It's a little unclear. Either she's made to be not welcome there and quits or she's actually fired or pushed out in some way. Wow. Yeah, it's not great. She didn't want out as far as I could tell. She was all in on this story, but nope. So they get rid of her and then She's just gone the company, and that storyline's dropped, and Zabisco gets a new manager slash valet, and then life moves on as if she didn't have some sort of blackmail, which to this day has never been explained, <laughs> on Dusty Rhodes. Okay. Now, there was actually at least one more bunkhouse match. Oh, right. That being uh, Starcade 88 that we heard announced over the loudspeaker while Flair was trying to cut his promo. Yeah. But I don't think it's actually called a bunkhouse stampede. I think it's just called like a bunkhouse battle royale or something like that. So, it's described as a 17-man, $50,000 bunkhouse battle royale. Yeah. So, similar, but not quite the same thing. That one is not televised, and Dusty's not in it. Yes. And, in fact, it's won by Junkyard Dog, apparently. So, that's why it doesn't actually count, because if Dusty doesn't win, it doesn't count. That's just the (laughs) rule, I believe. I do have to say, I really hope that either Cody or Dustin has that gigantic cowboy boot and the belt buckle. I swear I've seen a picture of that, but I couldn't find it now that you're, that you're talking that about That would it. be absolutely awesome. If I can find it, I'll definitely post it. Caudle and JR compliment all eight men who earned the right to compete tonight, and JR says it doesn't get any more physical than the NWA. JR says this meant a great deal to Dusty. Would have been nice to hear Dusty say that. <laughs> yeah, right? Caudle and JR run through the matches that we saw tonight. Caudle says it's been fantastic, and JR signs off. We get a video recap of the night set to the same dang music we've been hearing all night. Yeah. And Bunkhouse Stampede 88 is done. So overall thoughts on Bunkhouse Stampede 88. It's funny, you know, there's shows like, say, WrestleMania 13 uh, or maybe King Ring 98, for instance, from WF that are called one-match shows. Mm -hmm. This is basically the reverse of that. Because everything outside of the one-match, the main event, that is, is actually pretty good. At worst, the rest of the show is, like I said, a placeholder show or a slightly elevated house show. Mm-hmm. Because, 
you know, Flair's going to wrestle and bump around, but he's not going to the title. He'll win by DQ, and then life moves on if nothing happened. But obviously, you do get an actual title change, albeit with the Western State Heritage Championship. Yes. I need to say that title at least one more time. So I make it won't on, exist yeah. ever again. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, outside of that, yeah, this show is not super important. Again, Cola fights to a draw and then loses the title two days later, so there's no follow-up to this. Bisco is does win a new title, but doesn't really do anything with it. Flair loses via DQ and then just moves on. And then the bunkhouse thing isn't really followed up on. And then, as you mentioned, the next storyline with Dusty is also not followed up on for outside reasons. So it's one of the ones, if you skip this show, it doesn't really affect anything. Yeah. And it's a shame because it's surrounded by so much importance. It's surrounded by the idea that the Rock and Roll Express left right before it, so it's their exes from the company. It's important because all these people were involved in this big match that fills you for half a million dollars. This is apparently also the show that, as I say, broke the real camel's back uh, as far as booking, and a lot of people were mad at Dusty for booking himself the way he did. So it's important for reasons you can't see. Mm-hmm. If you're knowing the history, it's interesting, but if you're just watching these shows straight through and you go, oh, I didn't realize it was a Bunkhouse Day Beach show, nothing is lost or gained, really. Yeah, you think about where this is set in the history of the company mm. and what is what is immediately surrounding it. 87 in general is the UWF purchase. Mm-hmm. Starcade is the first time that Sting shows up on a Starcade. Yeah. You've got Clash of the Champions on the other end with Sting's first big world title challenge. Yeah. Starcade 87 is the first foray into pay-per-view for the company. Mm-hmm. End of 88 is the death of Jim Crockett Promotions. Yes. And the start of WCW. There's all this like massively important stuff going on around this show. It feels like this should be an important show just by virtue of association. Yeah. But it isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, it was a pretty nice show right up until the match it was named for started up. Yeah. It's weird to say that, but yeah, I agree. It's it's like it's the opposite of one match show. There's only four matches, and the first three are all really good fun. There are flaws, but each brings out some good character and has a good storyline to it. I was having a lot of fun seeing the 80s stars again after spending so much time in the late 90s. It was great to see Nikita Koloff again in particular, and it was cool to see our first actual Larry Zabisco match, too. Yeah, sure. Hawk getting a world title shot was great, and Flair made him look like a million bucks. The main weakness of the early matches is their endings. Yeah. All three have kind of a crummy ending with a time limit draw, cheap shot with a high-heeled shoe, and blatant chair shot DQ. With only three normal matches on the card, it would have been nice to keep it to a max of one cheap finish or non-finish. Like you were saying, Al, it, it feels kind of inconsequential as a result. Yeah. It's a little thing, but this is another of those shows where multiple matches get a time limit countdown, not just the one that's going to a draw. Mm-hmm. I love that, and I wish that every single show would do that. It feels so much more legitimate, and it helps hide when the time limit draws are going to happen. Yeah. So the show did a lot right overall. Then the Bunkhouse Stampede happened. Mm-hmm. I hated the Bunkhouse Stampede. Yeah. The Cage Battle Royale sounds really cool until you realize that the Cage stops the match from having any of the interesting Battle Royale spots and basically removes the chance of sudden, unexpected, exciting eliminations. The wrestlers did what they could, but most of the match is just people walking and brawling aimlessly until it's time for them to try one of their extremely contrived elimination spots. The match has no flow and is far too long for its level of content, and it's filmed incredibly poorly besides. It hurls the show off a cliff, in slow motion, the whole way down. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't help that there's no promos whatsoever on this show. 
If they'd taken, say, 10 extra minutes to give Dusty Luger and Animal some time before the match, and Dusty some time afterwards to say what the match meant to him, it might have helped keep me involved by better setting up clear storylines to follow and an emotional ending. I'm sure Dusty could have delivered on that in particular. Mm -hmm. It'd be especially nice if they took those 10 minutes out of the Bunkhouse Stampede match itself, making it much shorter. But even if the Stampede itself was awful, there's still three good matches before it. Combine that with some good commentary from Cottle and JR, who worked really well together and had some great discussions about match strategies and wrestler fighting styles the whole night long, and you've got a mostly good show here that's a fun look at the state of the company in early 1988. Just pretend the show is over when Cottle starts reading the credits, and I think you'll have a good time. I still can't believe we missed having a Sting match, though, come on. <laughs> yeah, it's true. In theory, it's a really interesting show. And I know it's an interesting footnote for the history around it, but if you don't watch the show, you don't miss a whole lot. Right. That's the thing, I'd say. All right, then. Match of the night and MVP. So, yeah, there's not a lot of matches in the show I've discussed. Match tonight is definitely not the main event. That's, yeah. That should be clear by <laughs> yes. now to anybody who just joined, who's just joined the podcast somehow at the end, which I don't think is possible. But definitely not that one. So it's really down to the first three I had to eliminate the flare match as good as it can be in part because it just like, again, it just felt shallow to me. So it's really on the first two then. So for me, it's got to be, in spite of the cheap finish, it's got to be the Wyndham-Zbysko match. Okay. I think that the cheap finish, the way it plays out, is designed to set up long-term stories. Whether it actually does or not, it's discussed. It doesn't feel like a just sudden stop to a match, mm-hmm. like the DQ finishes for flair in the hawk yeah and i really did want to give it to the first match but yeah that's because there's no winner and, and knowing what happened afterwards it's extra pointless it's just a shame taking away from the winners bisco match it is quite good even slow parts in the middle it, it holds up really well actually for me it was a close call between the second and third matches interesting i think i liked the flair versus hawk one a little bit better than you did i i think it was just noticing the little things about hawk selling that was kind of elevating that one a bit for me. Sure. But I'm still going to go with Zabisco versus Wyndham. There we go. It's a good match with a strong character in Zabisco and some really impressive power moves from Wyndham. It does have some visible flaws, but the effort the two put in really makes up for it. And unlike Flair versus Hawk, it has an actual ending. Mm-hmm. Not a clean one, but an ending. It's honestly also the only match in the show where something changes. True. Yeah. So yeah. that helps too. Yeah, that's true. I liked Zabisco and Wyndham's performances a lot, Mm -hmm. and they worked well together to put on a fun contest that kept me involved. They worked really hard, and that earns them my match of the night. So, Al, your MVP? Sure. So, MVP is definitely a much more competitive field for me. Mm -hmm. So, there's people that I could easily see. Flair, for instance, I thought he does a good job even on autopilot. Flair is really good. His, His baseline is very strong. Yes. Pick me between Wyndham's Zabisco uh, would be tricky. I really did like Wyndham's performance more than I've liked any Wyndham performance. Other than maybe his Clash match, I remember he was really good in the Clash match. Yes. yeah. I think that this is the best performance I've seen from him, especially in the singles match. Although, as we teased earlier, I'm going with my VP as Jim Cornette. Oh, okay. I wondered if you'd get there. I went back to that. I really did. He makes that opening match um, with Koloff and, and Eden. Taking nothing away from them at all. So enjoyable. What I really like about him's performance is the fact that he's always on. Mm-hmm. And top of that, 
Well, I wouldn't say that match is the convert someone to wrestling match. This is obviously better matches for that. If you showed someone that match and they never watched wrestling, they would know how to feel and how to react by watching Cornette the whole time. Yes. He's a great entry point on his own in this match. And I feel like if, if that match was booked stronger and he's so good in this, then it would easily be match night and MVP for Cornette. As it is, I can't take away from what he did by not giving him some sort of accolade for his points. Okay. Yeah, I, I knew you'd you'd sounded pretty strong on that before, and I, I was wondering, will he actually end up there? That's that's cool. On the rewatch, it definitely sealed it. Yeah, that's a terrific performance from him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I had uh, quite a choice to make on this too. There's a number of very good performances tonight, honestly, and it was really hard choice. But I'm actually going to go with Hawk. Oh, okay. His performance in the world title match really impressed me tonight. He's a great performer, but tonight he took it up a notch and he proved he could hang in a singles match with Ric Flair. Credit to Flair as well for making sure that he looked as good as possible. But even though the points where Hawk looked strong were awesome, particularly his almost sarcastic no-selling of the chops, mm-hmm. what really impressed me was how well Hawk handled the match from the knee injury onward. Mm. How he managed to simultaneously look seriously hurt and seriously powerful. That moment with him slowly stalking towards Flair like the Terminator, <laughs> well limping, really stood out. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. In every moment of the match from that knee injury onward, he looked vulnerable and strong at the same time, not trading off simultaneously. That was a difficult performance to pull off, and he did it exceptionally well. It sticks in my memory, and that earns him my MVP. Fair enough. I do have to also give... Just definite runner-up call-outs to Jim Cornette for a hilarious performance in the first match. Mm -hmm. Luger for his Luger selling being the only thing keeping me going in the Bunkhouse Stampede match. Absolutely. And JR and Caudle for just generally great commentary tonight. Yeah, I'll agree with that, Phil. And that wraps up our review of Bunkhouse Stampede 88. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about the shows as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, or TuneIn. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review, and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance figures, and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen, signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. It's okay, we're pausing for a second to let you guys get through. <laughs> Watch your step on the cord. Do you want your drink out here? Yes, please. Okay, I'll, I'll just read all the credits while you do that. Ha, 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 ha.